Welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast, your guide to help you manage life, money, and multiples. Each episode, host Paul Fenner, Tama Capital's president and founder, and the proud parent of four amazing children, including one set of triplets, will provide insights on successfully sustaining an active lifestyle, career, and family through comprehensive wealth management strategies, financial education, and lifestyle planning specific to parents raising twins, triplets, and more. Learn more, subscribe to the show, or connect with Paul at TamaCapital.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Tama may retain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Am I providing my family with the best possible life I can? That was a question that Colin Roche, an accomplished author, writer, an expert in global macroeconomics, behavioral finance, and monetary theory brought to our attention during our conversation. We also discussed the topic of inflation, what it is, how to understand it, and where is it going? Do you ever wonder why the U.S. government is not bankrupt because of the national debt? It's because the U.S. government is not your average household, and we talk about that as well. Cullen and I also discussed the critical aspects that a wealth advisor provides, which do not involve stereotypical investment management. There's nothing sexy about helping people to allocate their savings to support their wealth management plans. However, it is rewarding life work to see families have the protection they need from unforeseen circumstances and help them through the transition of retirement or putting their kids through college. The most interesting part of our conversation for me focused on defining what is enough. As Cullen put it, if we could simply put into perspective what we already have, our definition of enough would look wildly different than it currently does today. And as a parent, listen to Cullen's closing remarks on how being a parent for him is like reliving his youth. Please enjoy my conversation with Cullen Roche. So Cullen Roche, Welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great being here. This is for the audience. So just full disclosure, most of my audience probably won't know who the hell you are, but (laughs) I certainly do because I've been one of your biggest fans for probably the last 10 years. I've been reading your work. Uh, You've had this incredible blog called Pragmatic Pragmatic Capital um, and a book to go along with it. And uh over the years, I've learned so much about the inner workings of fiscal and monetary policy because of you, your writing. And now, as we were talking before we hit record, these really incredible three-minute videos that you do, taking something like inflation and, and explaining it in plain English, I think, for the mass uh, population, I think it's just incredible. So I can't thank you enough for being on. Yeah, it's great being here. You know, that's to a large degree, that's kind of become my, I guess, my go-to and what I'm I'm somewhat well-known for is taking these relatively complex topics and breaking them down into very, very, you know, simplified understandings. Because I, I'm not... I'm not like the smartest guy. So I, I have to like break this stuff down into very simple terms for myself to be able to understand them. And to me, you know, it's interesting, like, looking back at my career and whatnot and where I've kind of come from and how I've gotten to where I am, because I'm kind of known as more like a macro econ thinker almost, but I really, my whole background is in financial advisory and working with people. And, you know, the, the weird thing with that world was that 
I, I found myself not just being confused by a lot of the stuff that was going on, especially back during the financial crisis, but I found myself unable to explain a lot of this stuff in a very simple manner so that I could communicate it to regular people who were just you know, working other jobs and wanted to just know what was going on with their money. And so I found myself just studying a lot of the inner workings of the monetary system and starting from really a very, very basic set of principles where I was trying to just get to the roots of things like, you know, very simple questions that are actually really complex, like what is money? You know, yes. like people have this very sort of generic understanding of things like that, that actually when you start digging into it is a really, really complex topic. And, you know, understanding something like that, though, is so fundamental to being able to understand what is happening in the stock market or what is happening in the bond market or, you know, even just understanding, you know, basic things like why did the price of beer double in the last year? And so, you know, I kind of started from this very basic principle where I was really trying to understand like all the first principles of all this stuff and then build a foundation for understanding the world of money so that then I could not just you know, try to navigate it better, but communicate it better. Because once we can communicate things clearly to people, you have just a, a, a much higher comfort level with what you're doing because you understand how the machine works to some degree. Right. Yeah. I think, and I think that you just hit that, that nail on the head there. It's like, and, and I do this in my financial advisory practice as well, working with my families is trying to break something that's really complex down. And, you know, I go back to a lot of the readings I've done, you know, I've gotten from you and what I've learned from you is you're, you're definitely a big aid in being able to help explain, you know, what money is or what inflation is, which is going to be one of our big topics we talk about today, because that's what's on everybody's mind. But before we get there, why don't we take a step back? And like I mentioned, most of my audience won't know who you are. So can you just give us a, a kind of a, synopsis of your background and how you came into the world of finance? Sure. Yeah. I studied finance at Georgetown. I used to live, I grew up on the East coast. I grew up in DC, went to school in DC my whole life. And, um, when I graduated, I actually, um, you know, it's funny. I worked in insurance for like a year selling trash and, uh, it was the only job I could get out of college. And so I kind of took whatever, you know, someone was willing to give me. And eventually, you know, I, I transitioned it over to Merrill Lynch where I ended up working with a big team and we were, this was back in the days when, you know, things were sort of commission based and more, much more salesy. And, right. I was much more interested in understanding not so much how to sell the car, but I really, I mean, of course, I, I understood that I had to be able to sell the car if I was going to make it in that business, but I really wanted to understand how the car worked. And so I kind of, over the years, developed more of this sort of almost an engineering-like mentality approaching all this stuff where I was trying to understand how the vehicle worked so that not only could I you know, hopefully drive it better, but I could also explain to people why they should buy it, why it actually made sense. And it wasn't, you know, so I wasn't just like selling people, uh, you know, a Honda Accord as if it was a Ferrari. I was selling people a Honda Accord because I understood the dynamics of why a Honda Accord is a very practical vehicle. And so that's kind of been the progression of my career. I ended up leaving Merrill Lynch 
and starting my own practice probably, I don't know, this was 15, almost 20 years ago, I guess. And I've been independent ever since, which has been both a blessing and a curse because it's very hard being an entrepreneur, but it's also, it's great for somebody like me who's very, very much an independent thinker and trying to build my own framework for understanding the world rather than working from somebody else's sort of, especially a sales-based mentality. And so that's, I've spent way too much time probably focused on trying to, to build a model for how people can understand how the car works um, and not enough time probably selling the car to people. <laughs> um, but that's very much been the, the evolution of my career is that I've, I've evolved kind of from someone who works in a very sales-based business to someone who has developed more of a framework for understanding well, people actually need to own cars. You know, you don't have to force cars on people and sell them to people. You can explain to people why, you know, the Honda Accord will get you to point from point A to point B in a very similar way that a Ferrari will. But here's why the Accord actually makes a lot more practical sense for most people. And that's been that's been the the really the the biggest I think crux of a lot of what I do is explaining the you know, the practicality of how a lot of these things work and how you can apply them in your actual life in a way that you can hopefully, for most people, I'd say, you know, I'd say you want to find some balance in all of this stuff. And it's not about, you know, it's very easy, especially with, with finance and investing to get caught up in, in this sort of rat race where you're trying to beat the market. And when you work from more of a first principles perspective, I think, you come to these understandings that, well, actually, from especially from a financial planning perspective, beating the market, well, that obviously would be great, is not actually a financial goal that anybody needs to achieve. And so, right. you know, the Ferrari looks great, but the Ferrari actually, in most cases, you know, you you're not actually going to be able to drive it like a Ferrari, like you, you know, like you would benefit from the actual, you know, the, the speed of that engine because there are, you know, constraints, obviously. So you're going to get from point A to point B, but owning the Ferrari just ends up being really expensive. It's uncomfortable and it's less safe than a lot of other options. And that's a lot of what the investment world ends up coming down to. Yeah, I think there's a couple of points I want to touch on there is one, I always find it so fascinating. The uh, similar connections I have with, with guests like yourself, that this is the first time we've talked. Like, I feel like I, I feel like I know you because I've been reading your work for 10 years, but that I felt the same way when I knew I was going to come into the financial service industry. Um, you know, I wanted to have my own shingle, which in, in that sense, you know, 10 plus years ago, actually 12, I officially, uh, Tamil will be officially 12 years old the day my triplets turn 12 in December. And I didn't want, I, I was built the same way. I wanted to figure things out for my own. I didn't want somebody else telling me what I could or couldn't own for my family's portfolios or things mm -hmm. like that. And I think that's actually kind of my background in corporate engineering, finance, tax, and operations that I think really lent uh, that to, you know, me trying to, to build this on my own, which in similar to yours, it's like, we wear so many different hats as one, we're a financial advisor, but two, we're also a business owner, entrepreneur. And it's, 
I think it makes it easier when you're having conversations like that with other people of similar nature that they're like, oh yeah, I get it. And then when you add in like family dynamics, the fact that I have these triplets plus one, they're like, oh, well, you definitely get me because I have three plus kids and they're all these ages. And it's like, you know, a, a circus. And the other thing I wanted to, to mention too, is I think that within an industry, the investment piece is always the sexy piece that people want to focus on is investment mm-hmm. management, portfolio management and returns and being the market. And to your point, I think I've said this on multiple episodes throughout the years is that while that's important, it's not the most important thing. The most important yeah. thing we do as advisors is the, all the planning side that goes in. And it's funny because I know totally. you mentioned like you had talked about selling insurance and I was just having a conversation last night with a new family and they, they are paying like $9,000 a year for permanent uh, life insurance that they don't need. That's not covering them the way that they need to when all they basically need is term. That's going to be a fraction of the cost and give them the, the uh, death benefit exposure that they need. Yeah. And that has nothing to do with the stock market or how their portfolio is going to perform, but it's going to create peace of mind that the family knows that they're covered. It's going to help reduce their cost. And at the end of the day, the the husband and wife in this in this situation are going to be able to sleep at night. So yeah, well, you know, it's really interesting. Like, so coming from kind of an econ background to some degree, it was really when I was first writing my book and studying a lot of this stuff and kind of the guts of of really even you know finances. There's a lot of jargon in finance, and so this yeah. was one of the things that really bothered me. Like, like the word money is in so many ways, it's actually super counterproductive. Like I always tell people that money exists on a scale and like certain things have certain degrees of moneyness at certain times compared to other things. And so the, when you start creating these sort of binary definitions, it can to some degree be really counterproductive. But the, the investing one was really interesting to me because coming from a macro econ background, the word investment has a very specific meaning, and it essentially just means to spend for future production. And so when a firm builds a factory, for instance, they are making an investment, they're spending for future production, and that has a return on investment to some degree in the future. And it was interesting when I started kind of working through the definitions of all these words and stuff for like my book and whatnot, this is 10 years ago or whatever, um, I realized that the word investing, the way we use it in finance, it actually doesn't make a lot of sense because what most of us are doing is we're earning an income. And when we save some of that income, we can then choose to allocate that income to different instruments, stocks, bonds, you can leave it in cash, uh, money market, CDs, whatever it might be. But when we do that, we're not technically investing not in the in the proper economic sense we are allocating our savings and i think that that to me was kind of a moment where i realized like hey this is actually a really important thing to understand because the concept of investing in a lot of people's eyes is very sexy and from an entrepreneur's perspective it is pretty sexy like running a business and it is. if you if you go out and build a factory that's sexy it's and it's very high risk it might have a very high return, but it that's a totally different beast from earning an income and then putting it into a money market fund or even putting it into the S&P 500. And I think 
this differentiation between calling things savings and investing is important because people, I think, when they, especially when they allocate to the stock market and and you know higher risk, more volatile types of instruments, I think you can get into this mentality where you think of yourself as doing something very sexy that is you know, sort of more akin to like a get rich quick scheme. And I think a lot of people have a tendency to treat the stock market like that. Actually, they think it's somewhere where they're going to get rich and they're going to, you know, they're going to be the person that owns the next Microsoft at one penny before it goes to a thousand dollars or whatever. And that is just fundamentally not what we do when we take our savings and we reallocate it you know, that mentality of, of taking your literal life savings and then allocating it out across all these different instruments is a totally different mentality than the, the very sort of get rich quick investing concept. And so to me, it was always really important to tell people we are building a savings portfolio. When we reallocate assets and we, you know, we construct a financial plan and then we allocate it to all these different instruments, we are helping you allocate your savings. And that's a very prudent financial planning-based perspective. Yes, yeah, some of it could be sexy and it could kind of have similarities to investing in a technical sense, but don't think of it as this sort of very sexy get-rich-quick scheme. And I think that you know, little things like that, working from a very simple word and realizing, hey, our whole industry sort of misuses this word that is actually sort of fundamental to what, you know, we actually do in the investment world. And so working from things from that sort of first principles perspective for me has been just super eye-opening because you, you actually start to see a lot of the conflicts of interest between the way that these words are used to, to sell a lot of concepts versus what they should actually mean. And I think when you start to work from the actual meanings of these words, you come back to this very much more practical, frankly, very boring perspective of the way that a lot of this should work because it's not, it's not fast money and mad money and you know, this sort of like entertaining, you know, frantic you know, thing that a lot of people, I think, want you to think it is because they just want you to pay attention, really. You know, for a lot of financial media wants you to just pay attention and keep your eyes glued because it's, you know, it's almost more like a casino in their eyes. And, and that is the totally wrong way to view a lot of this stuff. Yeah, I didn't even have that in my notes of questions to ask you, but I thought that was one of the, the, the key aspects of of topics that I took away from reading your book was that this whole term investing was not necessarily investing. It was just really like you described it, you know, save, you know, allocating your savings. Yeah. So let's, let's do a, 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 a pivot to talk about what a lot of people are asking you. A lot of people are asking me, which is inflation. I mean, obviously we haven't seen this kind of inflation in, in, in like decades, not like years, but like literally decades. So can you walk us through it? I think I want to start with what is what is inflation in plain English? Yeah. So another, um, really seemingly simple topic that is, I would argue maybe the most complex topic in all of macroeconomics. So Inflation, 
From the Bureau of Labor Statistics perspective, and this is the the BLS, they formulate the CPI and all the sort of well-known inflation indices that we all read about in in the financial media and whatnot. From their perspective, inflation is a consistent increase in the price level. And the price level is represented by what is essentially a basket of goods that is is constructed to reflect what your average family spends in the course of a month. So what the BLS has tried to do is they've tried to basically build this basket of goods and services that the average American family holds. And so you know, you're right away you're working from a relatively imprecise you know, measure from the very get-go. And this reflects an average. So everyone's rate of inflation is actually very different, but they've taken what is essentially like the median household and they've tried to construct this basket. And the the proper way to understand um, inflation is really to, to compare the cost of that basket in one period versus another. And they they quantify this over various periods, but traditionally the the two main ones are month over month and year over year. And so the year over year is, is typically what we look at. And so um, what inflation is not that a lot of people tend to think it is, is just more money chasing more goods. And it's more complex than that. There are a lot of things that, um, that make inflation much more complex than that. And I think economists still don't really know what causes inflation, which is the, you know, the really crazy thing about understanding all this stuff is that when you, when you actually look at what causes inflation, well, it's very different in different economies. It's very different in different timeframes. You know, the, the inflation of the 1970s was a very different animal than the inflation that we're seeing today because the dynamics were so different. The, the commodity markets were completely different. We were basically just a petroleum-based economy back then. So the, right. when the price of oil moved, everything was super, super sensitive to what happened in the oil market. The, the baby boomers were, there was this generational demographic shift where there was a lot of natural pent-up sort of excess demand in the 70s that made this environment very different. Today, the, the demographic difference is gigantic. The the demographics are actually shrinking and completely transforming into a much older, smaller population now where the the rate of growth is very different. And so you can have all these different moving variables inside of this that make inflation very, very difficult to understand. And then obviously, like the last few years, you had COVID and the, the huge government spending packages combined with government shutdowns and supply chain problems. And so um, inflation is extraordinarily complex. One of the things I think I, I heard you just say there was inflation is very personal. And I would tend to agree with that. And it, again, it goes back to what stages of life you're at. So like, I know with the two of us, we have younger kids, but obviously I, you work with, you know, families of all ages, same way with me, you know, telling somebody for the last four or five years that had, you know, kids in college that there weren't inflation. Well, there was, there was a lot of inflation. And then obviously we've seen a lot of inflation in healthcare costs. So if you're a relatively healthy individual, you probably didn't see a whole lot of change in your healthcare costs. But if Mm -hmm. you were somebody that was, you know, sick or had, you know, some chronic disease or something like that, you know, that, that was really personal inflation to you that was affecting your bottom line. So I think, 
I think that point is, I think, an excellent one to make that you hear about, you know, the, the CPI and, and I think the, the mainstream media, which I'm not sure how much time we're going to have to go into, into that. But, you know, peop, a lot of people, that's where they'll get these facts and figures, if you will. I'm using air quotes. Um, but that may not mean anything to them because they're in a totally different um, lifestyle or um, environment or region and things that applied to them don't apply to everybody else. A hundred percent. Yeah. It's, I mean, God think of, you know, the last few years. I mean, if you, if you own a home with a sub 3% mortgage rate, I mean, your inflation situation is completely different than somebody who rents, you know? So it's just, you have all these, like you were saying, I mean, I live in Southern California where like, you know, I was noticing that the the national gasoline price has been going down, 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 down in the last like two weeks in California. I noticed that the price of gasoline went up like 15%. And I was like, what the, like, what is going on? And we have this weird refinery situation where I frankly don't even understand all the, the specifics of it, but it's very regional. And that's the other thing, the, the US economy is a huge and extremely complex entity. And so you not just have to look at this on a very personal level, but yeah, you have to look at it at a, at a regional level because it's all, all of this stuff is very different. So, but I think that, you know, in terms of what, what's useful to understand, especially over the course of the last few years is that the inflation that we've seen has been really multifaceted in terms of its causalities. And I think that's something that a lot of people don't fully appreciate even still is that because especially There's living no in the USA now, <laughs> everything's so polarized and so politicized. And I think people have an increasingly difficult time really stepping back and looking at things very objectively. And the, the objective evidence is starting to very clearly say, well, yes, a lot of this was caused by government spending. A lot of this was caused by supply chain shutdowns, the, the government shutdown, and a lot of just weird um, supply side issues that, frankly, are not fully resolved yet. And so COVID has had a much longer lasting impact on inflation than I think a lot of people ever expected. I mean, COVID ended up lasting a lot longer than people expected. And then, you know, the thing that... Um, that I think, of course, really shocked a lot of people was the war in, in the Ukraine, which that sort of, it knocked inflation into this whole other level because it elongated everything because you basically took the world's largest commodity pr uh, producer offline for you know a year. And so we're only just starting to see some recovery in some of the, the commodity aspects there. But yeah, the last, um, I mean, I, I would argue inflation on average is just extraordinarily complex. The last few years with the, you know, the mixture of the big, big demand component coming from government spending, and then the, the, the big component coming from the supply side, you just had a perfect recipe for, for inflation that was going to be really complex and really messy and really hard to navigate. You, you actually had a, a piece out this morning on housing and it's breaking and kind of goes back to what we were talking about is unfortunately I had one of my families that works in the mortgage um, industry. Uh, she lost her job a couple of weeks ago. And so, you know, that's, it's, 
I forget exactly how the phrase goes, but you know, it's, it's a, it's a recession or a slowdown when your neighbor loses their job. It's a recession or depression when you lose yours. And, and I, and I, I've had that thought in my head because I've now had three families go through layoffs here in Metro Detroit um, over the last month. And I, I think it, it, it harkens back to how personal these situations can be. Like I remember back in, in 06, 07, 08, living here in Metro Detroit. And we were already feeling it like being so predominantly auto here. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we were in a depression before the rest of the country got into a recession. And then once everybody was in the recession, we were really in the throes of, of something really uh, that felt dark and sinister. Yeah. And so it, I think if, if I step back, Colin, where, when people see these, headline news numbers and things like that, what would be your advice for people to keep in mind when they're, when they're seeing these numbers and quite frankly, sometimes just getting the, the heck scared out of them? Well, I think it's, it's useful to like, for me, at least, I think it's important to understand that a lot of this stuff most of it is rear view mirror looking. So that's a lot of what, when I, I, the piece I published this morning, this is the, the thing that worries, I don't want to get too much into like macro econ forecasting and whatnot, but um, the thing that worries me right now is that a lot of the, the way that policymakers operate is they're very data dependent. And so they're looking at these inflation components and inflation data that are inherently rear view mirror looking. And so you know, when you're comparing the, you know, the rate of inflation today to where it was, well, that's all trailing 12-month data. You're just looking at really a year-over-year a -year effect. And so it reflects where prices are today, but it doesn't necessarily mean that prices are in some sort of permanent, you know, like 10% debt spiral where we're just consistently going up 10%. And that's the, that's the sum thing for me is that when you start to look at a lot of, especially the forward looking data, you know, things like more like real time pricing data, like commodity prices, for instance, commodity prices are down almost 25% from their April highs and, but they're still up year over year. So when you start looking at year over year data, you can get this sort of misleading understanding of what is actually going on with prices in real time, because you're not actually seeing the year-over-year -year numbers being reflected yet, and so it it takes time for all of this to develop. And the you know the commodity price component, for instance, it won't start actually rolling over and looking negative in the data until like April of next year, when you start getting the year-over-year -year comparisons relative to those um, earlier in the year highs. And so that's one of the screwy things with inflation is that a lot of it is this sort of like you know, statistical metric where we're looking at things in a sort of rear view mirror sense to some degree, where it can be somewhat misleading because people will have a tendency, I think, to extrapolate a lot of this out into the future when the reality is that, I mean, personally right now, like when I look at the inflation data going forward, I find it very hard to believe that this is like some sort of entrenched high long-term inflation like the 1970s that we experienced. I, the data that I'm all looking at 
is consistent with prices that are actually starting to fall on a month over month basis and quarter over quarter basis. And, you know, we got uh, today's uh, real estate um, data from the FHFA and, um, and Case Schiller showed some of the largest month over month declines ever in these indices. And so you're starting to see price relief in a lot of these indices. And it just this is the other big thing is that the macro economy is this, especially the real estate market is this huge, big, huge. slow moving beast. And it, things don't happen quickly. And a lot of, a lot of this data that we look at that comes out monthly or weekly, it's very easy to get very impatient with this stuff. And I, you know, I don't want to sound blase about the inflation, but to me, the thing that worries me to some degree about today's environment is that the Federal Reserve, especially, is being very, very aggressive the way they're reacting to this. And so I wrote, you know, this morning that mortgage rates are at seven percent, which I, I mean, could, God, I could not even imagine seven percent like a year I, ago. <laughs> when I run, I mean, you run the basic math on it. I don't know how anybody. I mean, unless so much of your, you know, fifty percent of your disposable income basically has to be going towards your mortgage now. Which yeah, um, you did the math yeah. in that. That was a great post because you you walked through the math very simple, and that's like, how can you sustain a fifty percent income or increase in your cost of housing? Yeah, I mean, you and afford anything else? Yeah, you can, right? But that's the thing. You've got to divert so much income to other stuff, you know, away from other stuff. Sorry. That, um, you know, and I know housing has become a lot more important to people, especially with work from home and things like that in the last few years. But it's still to me, I don't know. I don't want to I'm, I'm known on my website as being very optimistic and sort of generally I, I spend a lot of time debunking really bearish nonsense. That's kind of I think what I'm probably best known for in the last 10 years. But man, today is a different beast. And I haven't felt the way that I feel right now, probably since like the mid 2000s, when I was really worried about what was going on in the housing market back in um, the East Coast. And so um, yeah, and navigating this behaviorally, I think that that's the thing. I think that if there's a lesson to take away from what's going on in the short term, it's that you do... I know we all live in the short term, but you really do. You have to try to maintain multiple time horizon perspectives over this. And you have to keep that long-term perspective in mind because that's the, that's the time horizon that matters the most. And even though the long-term is made up of lots of short terms, you have to maintain that long-term mentality because in the long run, the likelihood of a very high sustained inflation is low and things like, you know, bear markets or recessions, they don't last forever. They tend to be relatively short-term environments where, you know, when you when you take that, I think, a little longer-term perspective, it can help you behaviorally navigate a lot of this stuff because you just kind of realize like, hey, this is hard times come and hard times go. And sometimes I think when you take that longer-term perspective, you're able to kind of, at least for me, you know, I really like sort of embracing these hard times where it's like, you know, this, these things happen and you have to you have to be prepared for it, of course, but you also have to just be able to work through it and, you know, kind of put your, you know, your nose to the grindstone and understand that, hey, we're going to get through this. It's going to be OK. Um, the likelihood of this being like a, a Great Depression is extraordinarily low. 
But it's also you know, the, the times where really, really great things are produced tend to be in times where other, the bad, the old bad stuff is being destroyed. And so that's all, all of this is a very long-term process. And I think maintaining that perspective is really helpful for being able to navigate the short term. It's, it's ironic that you, that you went on, went that direction because one of the the things I've been chewing on and, and trying to put pen to paper is, is, is being an advisor, I think what sets really good ones apart, hopefully I, I consider both of us to be good ones, is this idea of having two competing thoughts in your head at the same time, where yes, in the here and now, things feel ugly. Um, maybe they get even uglier, but then also having that realization, that other competing thought that, okay, three years, five years, two years, 10 years from now, is this just going to be another blip? And we've got a hundred plus years of history on our side to your point that shows us, yeah, it's, it will probably just be a blip, but it's, uh, they're never fun going through, but like you, you kind of alluded to, it's, it's this cleansing process that, that the economy has to do every so often. And, you know, when you get to the other side, you you end up you we probably end up having better companies and a better economy for it yeah yeah i mean it's the natural evolution of things to a large degree i, I just I, I don't know if um we don't probably want to get into this too much but i just wrote a paper called all duration investing and this was another one of these sort of eye opening moments for me where i the focus of the paper is coming from a financial planning perspective where I do, I focus a lot on asset management, especially behavioral finance, the, you know, trying to help people navigate the investment world in a really behaviorally consistent manner. But I always found there to be sort of a conflict of interest to some degree between the financial planning side of things and the investment management world where investment management to a large degree in portfolio construction, sort of modern portfolio theory, uh, portfolio construction is all about beating the market. It's about optimizing your risk adjusted returns in essence. Whereas financial planners, they don't, they don't really care about that very much because what they're really trying to do is build appropriate portfolios that just meet people's financial goals. Of course, if you can, you know, you can optimize for risk and return, that's great. But to some degree, it creates a conflict of interest where the asset management world has constructed a lot of products that are designed to try to optimize risk for return, which in most cases means that to create more return, you just need to end up creating more risk, risk. which in those products and approaches, it can create a conflict of interest with the way that the financial planner is working because the financial planner then is creating excess behavioral risk because the portfolios are taking so much risk, where the planner then has a conflict within their own practice, where they are then fighting with the client to help them navigate everything behaviorally. And what I did with this paper was I I basically construct a model where, in my view, time is its the hardest thing for all of us to navigate, whether it's life or, I mean, financial planning to me is all about time. It's about understanding somebody's time horizons. What are your monthly liabilities? 
What are your annual liabilities? Are your kids going to college? When are you going to retire? You know, we have all of these time horizons out across our financial plans that are very uncertain and very difficult to navigate. And what I basically did was I tried to basically create a a kind of like a bond laddering approach where you're taking all the time horizons and identifying a duration to all of the specific instruments that we use. So for instance, the um, cash or treasury bills are basically like zero duration instruments. Those are from a financial planning perspective. You'd want to use those instruments for your short-term liabilities. The stock market is in my model, basically like an 18-year instrument. So that thing is more geared towards like, college planning or retirement planning or, you know, multi-generational planning. It's a very inherently long-term product. And so what you essentially end up building is sort of a bond ladder or like a bucketing approach where you're basically like segmenting all these instruments out across very specific time horizons. But behaviorally and from a financial planning perspective, it's very practical because what we're doing then is applying these very specific time horizons to the way people actually need to plan out their financial lives and their actual lives. And what that does is it, it gets you away from, you know, like a lot of people build, um, like I'm a big fan of just very simple, like Boglehead style portfolios, for instance. The problem with something like that is if you, for instance, like if you own just one fund in your portfolio, well, you don't really have any clarity on the buckets in that one product. Yeah, you have lots of different buckets within that one product, but you don't actually have liquidity inside of that bucket. When the stock market's down a lot, it drags down the whole bucket. And so segmenting all this stuff out, in my view, it gives people a lot of clarity about the time horizons they're working with. And it creates this, I think, very behaviorally robust approach where people have more certainty about their their ability to plan out their financial lives. And so it gets back to this this very sort of behavioral finance-based approach to asset management that I think bridges a lot of those gaps between the the potential conflicts between the way that we we use asset management products and the way that we want to build financial plans. So I wanted to I wanted to go with one more economic topic, which is which as, as I get often, and, and, and I think it's really misconstrued in, in the headline news is trying to explain why the U.S. government is not the same as a household. But I don't think we're going to have enough time for that one. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's really simple, actually. I'll, I, I'll try to, I do three minute money videos. So let me see if I can explain this in three minutes. But the simple fact is that the, the government is a lot like a bank. I always tell people that banks create money, loans create deposits, and deposits are money in any practical sense of the word. And so the government is very similar. The government can literally, it can literally lend to itself in essence. And it's such a a big income generating entity that its ability to create credit from thin air is vastly, vastly different from a household or even the wealthiest people in the world. You know, Warren Buffett has a vastly different credit line than I do. Um, but the government has a, I mean, especially the US government, which is functionally able to tax the most productive economy in the entire world, their credit line, it's not endless. Uh, you know, I don't want to imply that the government can't cause big, big problems, but the government theoretically could produce as much money as they want to because they have a bank that literally will just be able to create money and lend to themselves. And so 
those loans create money. And as we saw during COVID, there is no real constraint to the government being able to create that money except for inflation in essence. And that's the difference is that when you create too much money, if you borrow too much and you can't repay it or whatever, uh, the bank eventually comes to you and says, you're, de you're defaulting on this loan. There is a hard stop in terms of how much money you're actually able to print because the, the bank can literally stop you from, from taking out more loans, whereas the government doesn't take itself to bankruptcy court. And so what the government runs into is typically they run into what we're seeing now. They run into an inflation constraint. And that's it's vastly different from the constraint that a household has because even with an inflation constraint, you could get a crazy government that says, you know what, we don't care about inflation. Actually, there's certain theories that say printing more money will be this the resolution to inflation. And so, you know, that's not the 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 sort of view that I take, but um, you know, theoretically, even inflation can't stop a crazy government from printing more money. And so that's the the difference in a nutshell. Yeah, because I think that 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 people have this belief or this concern that they see like, I don't know, whatever the debt, the national debt is, I don't know, was it 11, 12 trillion or whatever? And it's like, well, how, how are we ever going to repay that? And the answer is, well, we might not ever repay that. The likelihood that we do repay it is, is probably not very likely. Well, that's another one of the big ones is that, um, you know, I talk about repaying the national debt and at the aggregate level, really aggregate sectors don't ever pay back their debt. So like the individuals have to pay back their debt, but right. individuals as an aggregate, the household sector doesn't pay back its debts. The assets grow, the assets have corresponding liabilities, and hopefully over time, as we produce these assets, we're also creating what is essentially net worth. And so the balance sheets always grow. And that's the one of the, you know, for, coming from that sort of first principles perspective, balance sheets always balance. And a lot of people will focus on the liability side of things and they never mention, well, hey, those trillions of dollars of government liabilities are actually assets for somebody else. And so, you know, you can, of course, you can get into scenarios where you create too many assets and you get things that are very frothy and bubbly. And that happens regularly. I mean, the, the housing bubble was basically an asset creation bubble. The, you could argue the last few years to a large degree were an asset creation bubble. And so you can get these big ebbs and flows, but in the long run, the balance sheets pretty much always just go in one direction. And that's because the assets grow and the liabilities grow, but the net worth also grows. And that's another thing that a lot of people don't often talk about is in the long run, American net worth, uh, the, the median net worth and the, the general wealth of the of Americans on average has exploded. So yeah, the liabilities have exploded, but the assets have exploded a lot more. And so that's one of the things that is helpful in understanding when you start getting into the, you know, the sort of nitty gritty accounting of this is that, you know, paying back debts, it's not really a thing at the aggregate sector level. So we can have debates about, you know, whether the government should have expanded as much as it did in the last, you know, 20 years or whatever. And, you know, should the government, you know, balance sheet shrink? Um, but at the aggregate level in the long run, the balance sheets are going to grow and they're not going to, you, you never pay back all the liabilities because we actually, frankly, we, we need the assets to, to, to thrive and to, to produce and to continue to, to produce all the stuff that makes living worthwhile. 
Yeah, that's a that's a really great point. And I know that I could probably stay there. So but I'm not because I want to I want to pivot back to the some of the behavioral stuff. Because accounting we, is boring. <laughs> I actually like accounting because again, that's my background, but um, I don't want to lose uh, any of our audience over yeah. uh, balancing the balance sheet. So um, it, this just means I'll have to have you back on, Colin. Colin, that's 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 what that means. I want I want to read you this this quote that I think was was in was in the book, and it goes something like this. The person who mistakes money for wealth will live a life accumulating things, all the while mistaking a life of owning for a life of owning for a life of living. And this has been something that I've been giving a lot of thought over the last several years. Um, I've had Brian Portnoy on that I'm sure you know of Geometry of Wealth. Um, I've had you know uh, behavioral scientists on, and it's just this concept of helping people define what is enough. And I think that in the environment that we live in, this consumer driven, keeping up with the Joneses, when I read that quote of yours, I was, I I knew when, when you were going to be on, I'm like, I've got to ask you about this Um, and have you expand more on, on, on your thought, because that's, that's one of the things that I have seen myself doing as a, as a advisor of, of families with multiple kids, over these last you know several years is helping people try to begin to define what is enough so they don't get caught up in that this rat race of trying to keep up and mm-hmm. and, and whatnot. It's really hard. I mean, it's arguably what is enough is probably the most important financial planning question that anyone can try to resolve for themselves. And it's really it's really hard especially in today's world where we're all so hyper aware of what everybody else has. And it's, I think it's totally natural to, to look at all the things that other people have and say, am I providing myself and my kids and my family with the best life that we could be having? And so I think, you know, when you look at things like Instagram and social media, you can get into this mentality of of saying, man, everybody else seems to be having a lot more fun than I am. And it's very easy to get caught up in this rat race of a feeling like you never have enough. And I think it's, this is obviously, this is like inflation. This is something that is super, super personal. And there's people that, you know, have much higher needs than others for different reasons. And, but I think it's really, it's really important, I think, to be able to find that balance. I think that's the thing that is really hard with, with working and especially managing your family and things like that. And your own personal happiness is, it's very hard to find a balance between having enough and feeling like you're, you know, you've still got balance where you've got time to, you know, do the things that you care about and do things that your kids care about and that your wife cares about. And I think that, I think in general, people don't, don't actually have a lot of perspective on how much we already have. And I think that's the thing that, that I've found really valuable is that when you study uh, living standards, for instance, in the United States over the course of the last 50 or 75 years. I mean, if you read just the, the you know, financial media or the mainstream media, 
you would think that living standards have like cratered and that life today is so much harder than it ever has been, which is just when you look at the data objectively, it's nonsense. We live in these huge colossal homes that are, you know, technological marvels and we we eat more calories than ever and you know the the everything that we have access to almost across the board is so much better and of course there's there's inflation in things that are really really nice and i actually say that you know people always point out well you know like inflation in college and and healthcare are really high now and it's like well yeah but that's also because 100 years ago nobody went to college right. and healthcare finding a good doctor who wasn't going to like lop your whole leg off when you got a cold sore in it or something like that was really hard to find. And modern medicine is amazing. It's expensive, but so is, is college now and all these things. And that's reflective of the fact that now our living standards are great where people look at these things and they say, healthcare should be a God-given right. College should be a God-given right. And that's, that's reflective of the fact that our living standards are better. And we, we have so much. We really do in a lot of ways have things so, so good. And I don't want to like downplay that, you know, life is hard and, you know, I've got two kids under two and I cry myself to sleep every night, you know? So like, you know, life, we'll get to that in a second. <laughs> life can be really, really difficult, but at the same time, I think objectively looking at the world today, um, I think it's very hard to compare ourselves to any relative living standard because all we know is what we see on like social media and stuff. We don't see the fact that, you know, a hundred years ago, nobody had air conditioning. And so, you know, little things like that, that a lot of us, I think, take for granted today. Um, it's hard to, it's hard to put yourself in the proper perspective where you understand, you know, well, Hey, do I, do I already have a lot? And is life actually maybe better than I, then I appreciate it being, even though maybe I don't have as much as the Kardashians have, you know, I still, you know, the, the average American is in the top 1% of world net wealth. You know, that's a mind blowing statistic. You know, you want to see real poor people, you know, go to real third world countries. That's where the living standards are objectively horrible. And that's what a lot of the world experiences. And so it, it's, it's very hard, I think, for people to put all of this in the proper perspective and understand, you know, what is enough? Well, I, I've been dying to, to, to pick your brain on that, on that, on that subject. And uh, I'm glad that, that we are finally having this discussion. I think this, I, I hope the audience will be one of the biggest takeaways is, you know, taking the time um, pulling back from their everyday life to give themselves a gift of an hour to just think about that and chew on that. Uh, because I think it's it's really really important. So so important. That brings me to my closing question that I ask pretty much all my guests, at least those with 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 kids, like I know that you do. And you just made the comment with I knew you had two that were pretty young. But what is the best thing about being a parent? Man, I mean, that's so much of it is amazing. I didn't ever, I actually am really lucky. I didn't think I was ever going to have kids. Um, so we, we, we went through the, the funny, uh, situation where I wanted to wait until I was 
mature enough and financially well off enough where I was really ready to have kids. And that point for me was apparently a little older than it, it was, it should have been. Um, so I'm just super fortunate. I'm super grateful to have my two kids in the first place. But what I think I love the most about having kids is that I, um, you sort of get to relive a lot of the stuff that, um, I think we just don't remember from being kids and seeing it, seeing them learn the world and understand the world through their eyes is just super fun for me because, you know, as we get older and, you know, life kind of gets hard and boring, it's, you can forget about a lot of the simple things that are just super great in life that, you know, really simple things that my daughters get really excited about that don't excite me anymore, but now they excite me because I see them through their eyes and I'm sort of reliving a lot of this stuff through their perspectives and really trying to, you know, embrace the moments where especially, um, like I know that these ages from like two to six are really special because the kids are, you know, they're around all the time. They're kind of hyper dependent on us. And, and I'm trying to really, embrace and, and enjoy all those experiences. Cause I know how sort of special they are. Um, but for me, yeah, I think the best part is just really appreciating these, these little fleeting moments I have with them where, you know, I'm watching them sort of learn about this amazing world and the, the things that I think a lot of us take for granted are so great to them is a good reminder, you know, again, kind of going back to what I was talking about before that, it's really easy to take simple things for granted. And, you know, like my daughter loves weird stuff. Like she loves skunks and <laughs> uh, rabbits and, you know, little things that I'd be like, you know, oh, skunks are gross. And but now we, like every night before bed, we go out and we try to look for the skunk in the neighborhood. It's, it's stupid, <laughs> but it's it's adorable and she loves it. And I, you know, I don't take little things like that for granted as much, I think, as I did before I had kids. Well, I, I love, I, I'm, I actually got that, this idea of a closing question from Patrick O'Shaughnessy, who, you know, we're probably colleagues with on, on social media and things like that. But uh, I love asking that question and, and the diversity of answers that I've gotten over the last almost two years of doing the show have been unbelievable. And, and yours, you know, one of my takeaways is just this reminder of keeping things in perspective and embracing the moment. So Colin, I can't thank you enough for being on the show. Um, I know this has been a, a long time coming for me to get you on. And, and again, I'm a big uh, fan of your work. And I know that our audience will have a lot of great takeaways from our conversation. So thank you very much. Yeah, it was awesome talking to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Please visit TamaCapital.com to subscribe to this podcast or to connect with certified financial planner and registered investment advisor, Paul Fenner of Tama Capital. And please join us again next time on the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Mm-hmm.